Human Vortex Training and Menachem Brody present the Strong Savvy Cyclist and Triathlete Podcast, where we talk strength training, physiology, psychology, tech, and much more to help you get fitter, faster, and stronger in and out of your sport, giving you expert insights, talking with other leading experts. And now, your host, world-leading strength coach for cyclists and triathletes, Menachem Brody. Hi, everybody, and welcome to today's episode number 55 of the Strong Savvy Cyclist and Triathlete Podcast. Today, we're going to dive into part two of our conversation with the Fast Talk Podcast co-host, Trevor Connor. And we're going to jump right back in where we left off in part one. So if you haven't listened to part one, go ahead and stop this recording. Jump back to episode number 55 of the Strong Savvy Cyclist and Triathlete Podcast, part one with Trevor Connor. And while you're there, check out the other fantastic guests, industry leaders, world leaders, and top experts that we've had on this show, including but not limited to world back lower back pain and back expert, Dr. Stuart McGill. We've had Tony Gentlecore, Sebastian Weber, Dr. Lisa Lewis, and a bevy of other guests whom you may or may not have heard of who are incredibly knowledgeable and making big impact for the world of endurance sports and for you. So while you're back there, make sure you're hitting the subscribe button, share this episode with three other people and get them in here. We've got tons of great content now in the past and upcoming for you. Now, speaking of great content upcoming, three quick updates before we jump into today's part two episode with Trevor Connor. Number one is over the last six months, I've been completely revamping my strength training for a triathlon performance program. It's now a monthly program at $30 a month, and you get fresh new content as well as a community that you can talk with and hang out with other triathletes who are going through the same program you are and seeing the fantastic results. Now, this program is unlike anything else that you have ever done, unless you've done a sports performance strength training program before, in which case it's kind of like that, but it's really dialed in for triathlon. So it's like that, but 60% different. Now, this is going to be released here the week of August 17th. So if you are interested, head on over to the Human Vortex Training website, humanvortextraining.com, sign up for our newsletter and be alerted as soon as it goes live, which again will be the week of August 17th. Number two, the Strength Training for Cyclist Certification is going to go live for enrollment for the fall period here in the next couple of weeks. And I am really excited. We went back and we filmed over 20 hours of additional content. And of course we edited it down and got all this stuff set up and put it in. There is, this is the most expansive uh, strength training course out there. And that's coming from other fitness industry, long-term pros. We're talking like 15 plus years in the industry. They've taken a lot of certifications. They've taken a lot of courses saying, hey, this is one of the best courses that I've seen. The regressions, the progressions, how you're breaking things down. Forget about cycling. You're like, yeah, you cover that like nobody else, but this should be taken by all trainers because you are giving them step-by-step progressions and regressions as to when, how, and why to use them. So if you're interested in saving $200 and getting this fantastic resource for you, whether you're a coach or a cyclist, you can sign up for the insiders list. You get 200 bucks to be notified before the course opens to the general public. So you can grab one of your seats and guarantee yourself a spot before it closes and it doesn't open again until the spring. 
So there's two times a year it opens for enrollment. That's it. If you'd like to sign up for the insiders list, go ahead on over to the Human Vortex Training website, humanvortextraining.com, sign up for the newsletter, and just let me know that you're interested in the strength training for cyclists certification by checking that little box. Number three, we have tons and tons of new YouTube videos and new podcasts that are going through the editing team right now. And the best part of all this is we are also revamping the Human Vortex Training website. So tons of stuff has been going on. Oh, and we have the audiobook coming out on Audible sometime in the next 30 to 45 days. Uh, Audible said that uh, their editing team is backlogged because of COVID. So technically it should have been done August 1st, but it's going to be done at some point in the near future. So if you've been holding off on buying my first book, The Vortex Method, because you wanted to listen to it on an audiobook, I have told you numerous times, it's coming, it's coming. Well, now we know why. So once Audible finishes its quality assurance, it will be posted live for sale, and you'll be able to get a paperback, a Kindle, or the audiobook. And because you know me here on the podcast, and you follow over on the HV Training YouTube channel, and you read my blog, you know that each of the channels is different content. So the blog will give you a, oftentimes a deeper insight into the videos that were released over on the HV Training YouTube channel. My Pez Cycling News uh, contributions will have different videos over there. So too with the audiobook. You know, they asked me if I wanted to do Whisper Sync where I just read off the page, but because you're coming to listen just like you are here on the podcast, I wanted to give you unique content. So it is not 100% like the book. I give you a couple different uh, real stories and comparisons and kind of give you more value in the audiobook than you'll get just in the paperback, which has a ton of value, the paperback and Kindle. You get access to three full year training plans as well as videos that you can watch so you know exactly how to do them. And these are the same videos uh, that I've used for the last five or six years. And in my programs now, that's part of our filming, is there's brand new videos. So anyhow, now I'm starting to ramble a little bit. You could tell I'm really amped about this stuff, and I love it because this is just really coming together. But let's jump into today's part two with Trevor Connor. And again, if you like this episode today, go ahead and hit subscribe, share it with three other people to bring them on into the Strong Savvy Cyclist and Triathlete family. Without much further ado, let's get into part two. Want to learn more? Check out humanvortextraining.com for more on this topic from Coach Brody and today's guest. And why is there such a, a hesitation for non-racers to, to do just that? Is it because is there a stigma about it that, oh, well, you know, traveling is just for racing? You know, a lot of people go camping, they take their bikes. But it seems like suggesting a destination vacation where you plan to go ride your bike, uh, obviously the significant other, the family needs to be taken into consideration. But it just seems like with the master's out, no, I'm not really going to do that. I just, I just I want to go and have a regular vacation. And they, they'd rather take the time off the bike. In your experience and opinion, is that something that's a symptom of not having, <clears throat> excuse me, a, a goal on the bike and it's just very general? Or is it more of, it's not part of our culture here in the States like it is in maybe the Netherlands or, or Germany to pack up the bike and take the trailer and drive somewhere in Europe and then ride from there. You know, it, it varies. Uh, I'm not certain that that's always the case. I, I have to think about the U S most of the cyclists I've worked with in the U S were racers and they generally didn't have issues with, with traveling. Now this is another country. Uh, when I was in Ontario, uh, they were all very big on traveling. 
the club that I worked with, uh, they had multiple trips for a year. There's every year there was a, a trip to Mallorca that they get a lot of riders to. There was a really popular trip down to Boone, North Carolina that they would get a good hundred riders to go down to every year. So that actually was really baked into the culture there. And there were a lot of people who didn't really want to race. They might do no races or just a couple races in a year, but they would go to a couple of these trips. You know, I know several guys who were doing three, four trips a year. Um, most of them were doing, I wouldn't say most of them, but a significant number of them were doing uh, at least one trip per year. So I don't think there was that big a concern about doing that destination cycling uh, trip. I do think there might be with, with some people who are, are truly recreational, just getting used to cycling an intimidation factor, uh, a worry about going on a, a trip, especially if it's an organized trip with other cyclists about, will I be able to hang on? Uh, what happens if they drop me and they're waiting for me? I, I have heard that and those concerns. And I think that discourages people from going on these trips, but most of the, the good organized trips factor that in and nobody's judging you. It, it's, uh, you, you just pick the right trip and then don't worry about that. Just go and have fun. And at the end of the day, everybody goes and grabs a beer together and enjoys one another's company. And speaking of that, that seems to be one of the ways or, or aside from experience itself, that the knowledge for how to actually read a race and, and to move around in a Peloton and to be able to, to get results in a race is transferred. There's almost no books written on, the, on, the, on that. Uh, I think there's three at this point with the most recent being published either last year or the year before by a guy named Peter Costens. Uh, Full Gas, I think is the name of it. But before that, the first book that came out that, that I recall was Racing Tactics for Cyclists by Thomas Breen. And I think I bought about 37 copies of that to give away to the, the young racers. Um, you know, is this something that there isn't a lot written about it or shared about it because it's one of those kind of uh, sports secrets where you kind of have to get in and pick it up little by little? Or is it just more of people don't think that this is something that needs to be done in order to, to succeed in, in bike racing. I think some of it is people don't appreciate all the eccentricities to racing, just how much there is to strategy, just how much there even is to pace lining. I, again, I'm a breakaway rider, so I'm very used to getting into a small group and riding together and how well that group works together is often the make or break of whether that that breakaway stays away and even at the pro one level i can't tell you how often i got into breakaways with guys who just didn't know the basics of pace lining uh, i read the the thomas breen book a long long time ago and that was one of the best uses of my time in terms of reading a book in a long time there was a lot of really good valuable information in there and and you think it is really basic but i remember reading so i remember reading that book and it had the whole how to pace line in a, a crosswind and, and initially reading it going well yeah why is he wasting time on this this all seems very basic and then literally a week later i'm in a breakaway in a crosswind 
and a guy is screaming at all of us to rotate the opposite way from ex you basically you you when you you, you want to stagger in a way that the people pulling off pull off into the wind and they take the bulk of the wind as they're dropping back into the group and this guy was screaming at us to do the opposite and i just went okay maybe there is some real value to reading that part of the book uh, there's a lot of really subtle tricks and tips and things to learn uh, about bike racing, about being in the field, about pace lining that are, are hard to pick up on unless you read it or somebody more experienced shows it to you. So, and, and I just think a lot of riders don't appreciate that. It's funny that was your experience for the uh, the Thomas Prem book. I, mine was almost exactly the same, except I was, was yelling to pull off into the wind, and people were like, "Why would I do that? That's how it works. That's how you recover. You're supposed to shelter us." Yeah, it was exactly the same thing. And I was like, you know, I was reading it, and it just happened to stick. My I, my thought process. I'm sitting here cracking up. I had the microphone on mute, which is probably a good thing. So I laughed out loud. I was like, that's literally what I thought of it. Like, why is he telling me how to go through a, a, a echelon into the wind? Everybody knows how to do yep. that. And because it's, it's like the answer you get wrong. You remember that one thing and then you're in the race suffering and you're like, holy crap, I remember this part of the book. <laughs> yeah, it's, it proved to be really valuable. It's funny you had the same experience. Yeah. That's, I had that, a... Go ahead. No, no, that's it's just... I got goosebumps because it's just, you're describing the exact same thing. <laughs> no, I, if anybody wants to learn about a lot of the, the details of, of how to race, that's actually an exceptional book. And it takes you right back to the basics, but you'll be amazed when, even when you read the basics, how often you go, I either forgot that or I actually didn't know that. And I'll give you one other example. I'm not going to say where this was. I'm not going to say who this was to, to save them any sort of embarrassment. But I was in a race a couple of years ago with some teammates. It was a crit. And I was, I, I have no sprint. I never go into a crit to win it. I go into a crit to work for my teammates. And I had a, a teammate who was a good sprinter. So I went, great, I'm going to work for him. And halfway through the race, a rider broke away who was particularly dangerous. We knew he could stay away and win the race. So I got to the front to chase it down. And this other team that was there kept trying to, even though, so it was not their teammate who was up the road. They were also racing against the guy who was up the road. And for some reason, they kept coming up and trying to push me off the front. Uh, and they were yelling at me. They were screaming at me uh, and, and trying to interfere with my chasing down this breakaway. And as a result, because of their interference, I was never able to bring the guy back and the guy won the race. And I'm in the parking lot afterwards. And this, these guys from that team that had been trying to stop me came up furious with me. And I'm like, what are you angry about? They're like, what were you doing out there? I'm like, I was trying to bring that back. And they're like, why are you trying to do that? I'm like, I'm working for my teammate. They're like, so you were on the front and you weren't trying to win the race? I'm like, no, I was trying to work for my teammate. 
well, we don't like that. What happens if we end up at a breakaway with you and you're not trying to win the race? That screws us. You shouldn't be doing anything in the race unless you're there to win. And I'm like, have you not heard of a domestique? And they're like, what's that? I'm like, it's somebody who sacrifices his chances to work for his teammate. And they're like, and literally the guy says to me, you would never catch me doing that. Oh, man. Trevor, we, <laughs> we need to hang out over beers or scotch because this is – there's, there's got to be like a happy hour for cycling coaches in the States. Literally exact same thing again. Exactly. <laughs> Why would you bring that back? That, that's how bike racing works. You, you don't, that's someone who could win the race and we have someone that we want to win. So we're right. going to bring him back. Well, why would you do that if you don't want to go? Why did you sit up after you did all that work? You should go off the front. My right. work was done. My teammates take over. Well, why would they do that? Why would you do that? <laughs> what about you? You finished dead last. Right. My job was done. <laughs> <laughs> right. And they didn't get it. And this was, I had that conversation with this team a couple of times and they just didn't get it. They felt it was unfair and dirty tactics for me to do work in a race when I'm not trying to win personally. Is there a, dis and, is there a disconnect uh, with how team racing is? Like, is it that big of a disconnect at that level? Well, the thing I, keep, I don't get is I'm like, I know these guys watch the Tour de France. And that's how you race a tour. A team, you know, team Sky sits on the front and controls the race for their team leader. I know they've seen this. How come they don't get it? But this is again the, you know, that's something to me that's not subtle at all that, that people see, but yet you have people who are racing, have been racing a long time and don't even get those things. So to get a lot of the real subtle things in racing, can be really, really difficult. Like to give you an example of some really subtle tricks, and here's a bit of a dirty trick that I pull, and I'll admit it's a little bit dirty. Uh, when I'm in a breakaway, I will often identify who is my biggest threat in the breakaway. And what you do is I get myself in front of him in the, the pace line. And then when I pull off and it's his turn to come forward, I don't slow down right away that forces him to speed up uh, in order to get ahead of me before he can pull off. And if he has to do that 100, 200 times, he doesn't really notice it just the once, but it adds up those little accelerations to get ahead of me and it, it beats up his legs and increases my chance of beating him late in the race. Bit of a dirty trick, but there's all sorts of little things like that that very experienced cyclists do that are incredibly subtle. Yeah. So you got to know the basics and then you got to learn all those, those little subtleties. Yeah. It's the, the death of a thousand cuts. A lot of people think, well, I want the guy in front of me so I can keep my eye on him. No, 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 no. You make him, right. you make him come around. Oh, I, I don't think that's racing dirty at all. I think that's incredibly intelligent because you're mon you're monitoring and managing your energy and trying to say, okay, if I can take, you know, half a watt here, half a watt there from him, that's going to allow me to use what I have much better. I think Thomas talks about this in the opening of his book, if I'm not mistaken, uh, how he was never really the strongest rider and people thought he was cheating, but he just used his brain to figure out how do yep. I do this? And that's, that's the chess game of, of cycling. I think the women do it better than the men, to be honest, just watching some of the crits and the racing in, in Europe. I, it's, 
mind-blowing just to see the level they take it to. Uh, some of the riders over there are, you know, I, I saw Marion Voss, I think two or three races in uh, Netherlands when Esther was first going. And it, it's an art. It really is. It, it really is an art to watch some of these racers uh, who have teams that get it to, to go to work and how little work they actually do to get the results they do. But when they go, they're all in. Like it's, it's a bomb exploded and you just, everybody's just shattered, but it was set up by the conservation of energy and the least amount of work they could do up until that point. Well, I, I agree with you. I think in many ways, women's races are, are more exciting. Um, men's races, you have, at this point, at, at the highest level, even though you talk about a, a Chris Froome or certain riders being at a higher level, actually, the, the level is fairly uniform, which means that no one rider can really take on the field. It, it becomes all about team strategy, and really, most races are about... Uh, let's deliver our guy to the sprint or let's deliver our guy to that final climb and then they duke it out. You always know how it's going to play out. In women's racing, you have a, a little more of a range and you have women that can actually take on the field. Uh, so it's not just about the teams delivering them to that, that final moment. You have women who can break away early and stay away and win the race. You have all sorts of more possibilities that make the race so much more exciting to watch. And that's one of the things I'm, I, I personally hope will, will begin to change because part of that seems to be that it's the, the number of women that are not in cycling that would do very well with it. But because one, they're, the pay is not that great. I mean, across both sexes, it's not that great. Uh, there is a disparity at the Grand Tour level, um, but that's kind of been the sport for the last how many decades. Um, but a lot of it is the, the support for women's racing as a whole hasn't really been that great. Um, part of it is because like Pittsburgh, we had a small cycling community. So we held women's only races, I think for the first four or five years that I was uh, a coach. And we, then they just didn't have, it was the same six women. And you know, at some point, unfortunately, it becomes either a business decision or you want to get the juniors some more time. And then it was the women's and juniors, which creates all kinds of other issues. You know, the women who are really competitive were very patient. Um, but at some point, they just said, look, the juniors need to be done three or four laps before us so we can actually race. Um, you know, we're not paying to, to be with juniors and have to, to work around them. Not in those words. Uh, and it was very friendly. Like everybody was on the same page. But I, I'd really love to see more women get into the sport of cycling at the, the racing level. What do you see are kind of the obstacles right now, if you're comfortable going down that, that route, for women uh, getting into racing and building out that, that sport? I really don't have any answers on the why you don't see more women getting into racing. The only thing I can say is yes, and, and I've coached a, a, a lot of female athletes, and the hardest thing that we have to deal with is the lack of numbers. Uh, so their races, certainly as they're going up through the ranks, through the cat fours, through the cat threes, uh, the, the numbers in their races are, are quite small, uh, which is unfortunate because going back to that, learning the idea of you need to learn how to race, uh, pick up a lot of the skills along the way, um, there, there's plenty of female athletes that unfortunately when you're just racing three, four other women, you don't get the experience of racing in a large peloton until you're actually at that cat one level. 
why that is, why there aren't more women getting into cycling, I, I don't have an answer for you. I, I wish I did because I, I wish we could help solve that. Uh, likely it's there, there are impediments, either funding or bias or whatever that are that are making women not feel as welcome in the sport which would be really unfortunate but i, I think you would have to ask the women racers that why why more women aren't getting involved but that would be my guess is we are probably creating a bit of an environment where they don't feel as as welcome or as, as encouraged and if that's the case we need to do something about that yeah, I think part of it is, is a lot of the female riders that, that I've had experience with, which, you know, is a, a small number uh, compared to a lot of other coaches and people in general, but they're very tenacious. The women that get into cycling are just, they can suffer. I mean, let's, let's not kid ourselves. Women can suffer way more than men can. We can, we can kid ourselves all we want, but uh, they're able to handle way more pain. And uh, the, the thought processes, the games that they can play of chess within that game is just so much higher but part of it is, from what I saw in Pittsburgh, and again, a very small cycling community that, you know, we had a number of great racers, uh, male and female, come out of there. But the female riders, it's either racing with a handful of others, three to six, or really, really suffering and getting dropped by, by the men. And it's just not fun. Like, you're, you have this competitive uh, fire within you. And I saw this with two or three women who had a lot of potential, but they were just a little bit too... Uh, underdeveloped for the men's race and they they needed someone to push them you know for two or three laps until they can get that second win and then they'd be okay um but it's very hard to develop them for exactly what you said they, they don't have the opportunity to sharpen those skills and to actually develop as much yeah no and we certainly don't have the the infrastructure in place that we should to, to help develop them but i, I agree with you on hundred percent in terms of the toughness. I've been asked many times, what's the difference coaching women versus coaching men? And I'll be straight up. What I talked about at the beginning of this show about uh, having to teach men who are trying to go pro about how to dig deep into that pain cave and really suffer. Uh, sometimes with male athletes, you have to teach them how to do that and they are resistant. With the female athletes I've coached, I have to be careful because if I gave them a training plan that will grind them into the dirt, they will do it and they will absolutely dig themselves into their grave. Uh, I, I, I agree with what you're saying that, that women cyclists are just damn tough. And I'll also say when I went to the, the center in British Columbia, when I was just an athlete there my, my first year, uh, the two cyclists who really taught me a lot of what I know, who I still think of as two of the smartest, most experienced, toughest cyclists I've, I've ever known are Aaron Willock um, and Melanie McQuaid. I, I, we are, we're definitely going to have to get into this uh, off the podcast as well. I, I'm, that's something I'm really interested in, in developing is, is women's cycling. I think part of it was the science also, you know, Stacey Sims is the name that, that everybody's talking about and pops to mind, but there are a number of other uh, professionals that are helping women train better for their physiology. 
Uh, I failed the first three women that came to me exactly what you said. I gave them super hard training plans. They were harder actually. The third or fourth month was harder than some of the guys that I was working with, but we just didn't get the results. And I, I wonder how much of the equation, because it's always a, a, it depends. There's always so many different things, but I wonder how much of the equation is uh, uh, coaches still being stuck and not understanding that for a couple of days, at least a month, the female training plan needs to change to meet their physiological needs. And um, cause that's a big impediment. I really, like when I say I failed them, they were getting slower. You know, they get fast for two weeks and then slower. And over the culmination of those six to eight months, they got slower. And it's very frustrating as a coach, especially, uh, but definitely for the women, like how many other coaches are making that mistake that I made and just aren't learning from it or aren't realizing that, that, you know, it's not that the athlete's not a good fit for you. It's that your tool set is you have a hammer and they need, you know, a power drill and a, a file and a flamethrower <laughs> kind of thing. Well, I, I will say every female athlete and every coach who works with female athletes needs to read Stacy's book. You know, it's, it's unfortunate right now that there really is, I'm, I'm only aware of the one book, but it is a fantastic book that, uh, you know, what Stacy likes to say is women are not just small men, that you can't train a woman like you, you train a man. And it's not an evaluative thing. It's not men are better or women are better. It's just we're different and you have to coach women differently and women need to train differently. And that hasn't been addressed. And it's Unfortunately, in the research, and we, we don't need to go into the reasons, Stacy goes into the reasons in the, the first chapter of her book, but when they do research on athletes, endurance athletes and strength athletes, they tend to pick men and, and just kind of say, well, here's what the research shows, and they extrapolate it to women, but it doesn't always apply to women. So there isn't enough research on women, and there isn't also enough knowledge about what training is best for women. And that, that's a deficit that we need to address. And I think Stacy's book uh, is fantastic in that sense. Yeah, and let's even get even deeper into that. So it's not just the, the research that's lacking. It's the fact that, you know, for women, it's also for men because it's college-aged men. So once you get plus or minus the age of 40, things change significantly, especially if you have children at home uh, and you're active in, in raising them or even just around them. Like there's a lot of shifts that happen that because there are confounding factors and science is so hard as it is, uh, you're reading that, that research and this is not to downplay that there isn't enough research in women, just to make clear, I completely agree with what you said, just pointing out also for the listeners that there's also age considerations you have to take into account. Yeah. Well, I am, having been in this world, I am very sympathetic to researchers, especially when you are studying athletic performance. There isn't a lot of money. It's very hard to get the funding. Usually it's very small funding. And I get as a researcher who works at a college, you're trying to figure out how to get subjects. And it's tough just to get 10, 12 subjects. So the easiest thing to do is just post a bunch of ads around the university and, and try to get some students. Um, if you're trying to get people who aren't part of the university, there's a big jump in expense. It gets harder to find people. So I get that. It isn't saying that we shouldn't find ways to do that research, but, but I get why it's, it's tough. 
there is a lot of money in health research in looking at morbidities and figure out what's going on there. And unfortunately, most of the research when you're looking at elderly populations or, or even middle-aged populations tends to be looking more at, at heart conditions or diabetes or a variety of, of different conditions. And sometimes they will use exercise protocols to look at the effect. And so I'm actually gonna flip this around a little bit to what you were saying is, I think in some ways we've overestimated the effect of aging because when people look for research on aging, they find a study where uh, they, they did some sort of interval test with people who were diabetic or morbidly obese or had other comorbidities. Uh, and that impacted their ability to do the exercise. And so you, if you don't factor that in, you, you look at the research and go, boy, aging really can, can really takes us apart when it's, they're actually studying, you know, a, they're studying a different population. They're not studying an athletic population. Does that make sense? And I, I know I didn't express that well, and there's a, a lot of landmines here, but um, essentially from a scientific perspective, you're, you're dealing with multiple variables that have changed, and sometimes we don't factor in the other variables. Absolutely. Better way to put it. Agree with you 100%. A book that I like to give uh, that changed my perspective on research and, and really helped me open my eyes was uh, How to Lie with Statistics by Daryl Huff. Mm -hmm. And it just, you know, I started rereading some of these studies that I had, you know, firmly planted my flag in the ground. This is my stance. And then going, holy cow, they broke it down how they wanted it to read because that's what the they spent money on and the university wanted to make it back was the hypothesis. But um, even within what you're saying, like there's so many other confounding factors of, of how they break down the statistics. How do they decide that someone should not be included in the end result? Um, the comorbidities, like you said, you know, working in a, a exercise physiologist role for a bariatric clinic. I learned that very quickly about the comorbidity comorbidities and uh, which one led to what. And sometimes you, you just don't know, you know, sometimes it's just genetics. You look at the family history and it's, you know, my dad got diabetes when he was 52 and I'm 53 and it started at 54, you know, and it, it's very clear sometimes. And oftentimes they just don't have the money to figure out what that, that clear cut path is. And that's my problem, honestly, you know, on a, on a personal side of, with some of the statistics that come out now is they're just publishing it because they put the money into it. So we're going to publish, we're going to change the hypothesis so it matches what we found. And oftentimes it's just not, it's not anything new, but it's a new study. So it just goes under the blanket of uh, proving what's already quote unquote known. Um, and that kind of comes back to something we spoke about earlier, and that is you know, we all have our kind of biases and what we think bike racing is or how it should go. Uh, and really, there's so much more to it. So how do we change that mentality? What would be something that, that you talk to some of your master's athletes that come to you and they have this perception of bike racing and you really have to help them open their eyes or open their mind a little bit more? What would be one or two things, skills or tools that you would uh, try and, and teach them to be able to do so? Oh boy, that's a, a, a big question. Uh, you mean in terms of training, in terms of racing, in terms of 
life in general? What yeah. uh, in terms of uh, trading, I will go with. What? So when I have a new masters athlete who who comes to me, and I, well, I will tell you, and this might not be answering your question at all. So so please, uh, after I answer this, uh, steer me in the right direction. But the biggest thing that I have to address whenever I have a new masters athlete is there is very much a mindset of I have limited time. Therefore, if I am on the bike. I need to have my tongue hanging out. I need to be going hard. I need to be going hard all the time. And with every, almost every master's athlete I've worked with, trying to slow them down, trying to say, we have some workouts where you're going to be going really hard, but we're also going to have some workouts where you're actually going to be going really easy. They struggle with that. They don't struggle with the hard days. They struggle with the easy days. And Feedback I get almost every single time is, I feel like I'm wasting my time on the bike. Why am I doing this? And when I can get an athlete past that and get them to have their easy days and have their hard days, that's when we tend to see improvement. That's almost a direct juxtaposition of what you had said at the beginning, which is, you know, a lot of riders don't know how much they, they need to suffer in order to to move up and to see those results. And you just said they, so essentially what you're saying is they think they know how to suffer, but they don't know how to go easy enough so that they can actually suffer when they need to. So one of my favorite quotes, which I cannot take credit for, this is from Neil Henderson. He talks about athletes training in Maturato. If you are going quote hard every day, if you're getting on the bike, five days in a row and every time you're doing intervals, I guarantee you those intervals are never very hard because you are fatigued. You, you, you don't have that, you didn't give yourself enough recovery time, so you just can't do them hard enough. And so a lot of masters athletes end up in this in moderato, this in-between place where they're sort of going hard it feels really good. They feel like they got a workout. They worked up a sweat, but they never went really hard. It never really hurt. And uh, they, while they think they're doing something, while they think every workout was valuable, they tend to complain that I seem to be just plateauing. I never seem to be getting any better. And when you have that, so, it, as you know, I'm a big fan of the polarized model. When you polarize like that, where you have some easy days and some hard days, when you get to those hard days, you can actually make them really hard. And to give you an example, so that athlete I told you who I'm working with, who I'm trying to teach how to hurt, we finally actually on Saturday got him to do that. And he said to me later in his report, he said to me, that was some of the worst pain I have ever felt. It, it's funny because uh, that, the, the polarized training is something that we, we don't 100% line up on, but the trends are the same across the athletes that I work with. I worked with a team here in uh, Tel Aviv for a number of years. And the complaint, I would, I, I 
believe in kind of prescription dosing essentially. So we're looking for consistency over time and getting the right intensities as, as much as we can. We're looking for 80% adherence. So I guess you could kind of say it's that polarized in a bastardized way. Uh, we've yeah. got to hit 80% of the workouts as written. And when I was looking at the files for a lot of the riders that I was working with and I'm, you know, I'm looking at them and I'm hearing what they're saying about how they feel they're not getting the results. When I actually went and looked at their training files, when we had the, the intervals, they were going too hard in the endurance or the tempo sections and they weren't able to hit the intensities they needed at the higher levels. Like I remember one workout in particular I gave, I think six or eight by one minute all out, uh, easy pedaling for three minutes in between because we wanted that anaerobic capacity, get the neuromuscular fatigue, really push them. And across the board, I don't think a single rider uh, actually did that workout within 40% of accuracy. We're talking like 30% where they would kind of go all out enough to hurt and like <laughs> looks yeah. like they're really coming around, but then they were pedaling at upper endurance. Like that, that understanding yep. of to win a race, you need to learn how to pedal and put as little effort as possible in order to stay in the positions you need. And then when you go to pedal, it should be like an atom bomb going off or just splinters going everywhere because of how much power you have. People have this preconceived notion, it seems, of I have to pedal hard all the time. There has to be some type of pressure. Granny with her Pomeranian and her, her banana seat can't pass me. Is that just an American thing or, or is this you know, something that you've seen across international waters here? Uh, personally, I have seen that everywhere, with one exception. When I work with high-level athletes who are successful, they don't take that approach. They, they make their quality high quality, but they also know how to ride really easy. And the example I love to, the two examples I love to give are one, both from when I, so sorry, so both were from when I was at the center in Canada. And we had some very high level athletes at the center. Swain Tuff trained out of the center. Ryder Hedgedal trained out of the center. We, we had top, top level athletes there. And my, I remember my, first week or second week there we were out for a group ride so we did two long rides uh, together uh, all the athletes at the center and those were our, our volume but relatively easy pace and i showed up going oh i've got to show them i can hang on so i was on the front of the group we had a uh, a climb ahead of us a couple minute climb so i'm like okay i gotta take this climb hard and i took it at like 400 watts got us over thinking, oh, I showed them, uh, I belong here. Well, 30 seconds later, one of the, the, the top riders at the center comes up to me and goes, you ever do that again, you're not welcome on this ride, ever. It's like, I don't want you breaking 300 watts going up a climb, got it? It's like, okay, sorry. Uh, the other example I can give you is, so we had those, those two steady rides. Uh, Husheng, the head coach at one point, had to go over to, I think, Asia uh, for a couple weeks. I can't remember where. It might have been. I, I think he was working with uh, the, the Indian Federation. Uh, but anyway, we were stuck without Husheng there. He would always drive in front of us uh, or behind us. So we said, what should we do about our group rides? And he told us to go to the saturday morning local group ride and a bunch of the riders at the center 
balked at that, didn't want to do it. They were complaining about it. It wasn't because, oh, the local master's riders are going to slow us down or any of that sort of stuff. It was the local group ride is too fast. That's, it's so, it's got to be a common thread across coaching after a certain number of years where you've had these experiences. That's the riders, it, it seems to me, and I've had not nearly a tenth of the experience you have with, with the professional riders in development. In my small experience, it seems to me that there's a personality to be successful as a bike racer uh, with men. They understand when and how to suffer, and they understand and comprehend the importance of going slow. And, you know, my penultimate experience was, uh, again, with Andy, where we were just both, you know, talking power numbers and we were looking at his uh, quadrant analysis. And I just looked at him. I was like, dude, would you ride a triple this winter? And he looked at me. He's like, what, to keep the, keep the skew up in the you know, upper right? I was like, yeah. He's like, totally, let's do it. And he took so much crap for that. But the next summer, that was it because he was able to manage all of, you know, Pittsburgh's pretty sharp up and down. Have you found that, that it's a personality thing where, where there's certain traits that you, you have these interactions with the rider over the course of a couple of weeks or a couple of months and your, your spidey, your coaching sense kind of tingles and you're like, this kid's got the tools. We just have to teach him the skills now. Is there a personality or is it more of uh, the environment around and they're being uh, able to filter out or have good people to filter out what's coming into them? I think it's a mix of things. One is when you get riders together, there's just this competitive thing that goes on where they, they have to one up one another. They have to half wheel one another. And it takes a very experienced athlete, ironically with a strong ego to be willing to be dropped, to be willing to say, I don't want to go that hard. Either you guys need to slow down or, or I'm just going on my own. So you often see your more experienced cyclists end up doing a lot of riding alone so that they can go the right pace. And, and I know I certainly got frustrated when I would go out with people say, I want an easy ride. And I like, go, oh, yeah, I want an easy ride too. And next thing you know, they're doing 260 watts trying to prove themselves to you. And I've been around long enough that when guy does that, I just go, you know what? I'll, I'll catch you later. And they go, why? And I'm like, I said, I want an easy ride. You're doing 260 watts. I don't want to go that hard. And they're like, oh, sorry. Okay. And then they slow down. We go my pace for a little bit. And then they're back up to 260 watts trying to prove themselves to me because they just can't, when they're with another rider, not race. So that's, that's one side of it. The other side of it is that there's just this counterintuitive part to it. You have limited time. A lot of riders just struggle with this idea of, I need to go slow in order to be able to go fast. It, it is that mentality of, I only have so many hours, I need to make the most of each hour. And the only way to make the most of each hour is it needs to feel hard. God, I hate that. <laughs> i loathe that and it's the hardest lesson to teach people and i just stop trying to teach it and let them kind of figure it out on their own some people figure out faster and some slower um trevor there's so many other things i have about six or seven pages in my notebook here of other stuff that (laughs) we could talk about um you just have such a, a great experience and and uh a great eye of understanding things and and way to break things down where can um 
where can the listeners find you uh, online as well as uh, find you as a coach as well? Uh, so, well, I will say as a coach, like I said, unfortunately right now I'm, I'm full in terms of athletes because of trying to get this, this business off the ground, uh, which I, I really hate saying, but I hope that does change soon. In terms of finding us, uh, the, the website is fastlabs.com. Uh, we also have a, an email, um, I remember off the top of my head, but I believe it's fasttalk at fastlabs.com. Uh, I also have Trevor at fastlabs.com. So uh, I think those would be good starting points. You can try to reach me on social media, but uh, if you wanted to have a conversation about how to do social media with me, that would be a really short episode. I'm not on it very much. I don't know how to use it. So I apologize to anybody who's been reaching out to me there and they haven't heard from me. You're busy not, doing not, uh, just not the way my brain works. I, I just, I keep going on to Twitter and I can't get it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't get Twitter. I'll admit to it. <laughs> 160 characters. <laughs> I need more. We need about seven pages. <laughs> well, for me, it's the funny, it's following the conversations. I haven't figured out how to do that. Well, people will tell me, did you check out this conversation? And they'll explain everything that happened. This person said that, that person said this. And I go on to Twitter and I'm like, I can't find it. I can't find, like, I find bits and pieces, but they're all out of order in different places. How did you follow this conversation? I've never gotten beyond that point. So, and people have tried to have conversations with me and they get annoyed with me because I, I can't follow the nonlinear, all over the place nature of, of Twitter. Like I said, it's just not how my brain works. Yeah. So uh, I've kind of avoided it just not to offend people when I try to talk with them. <laughs> uh, I love it. In the same way, I, it's, yeah, you're like, the message was just right here. I just sent it. Why is it the fifth one in the, in the thread? Why would yes. they do that? Yes. <laughs> All right, Trevor, thank you so much for joining us today. We're looking, uh, we'll have to have you back again and we'll, we'll uh, get into a couple more topics here. Anytime. And uh, thank you for all the great wisdom you've shared with our audience. We always love having you on the show. Hey, thank you guys so much for hanging out with Trevor and I. As you can tell, we had a lot of fun talking. And the podcast interview, actually, uh, we wound up speaking for about three hours, almost uh, two and a half hours. We just had a lot of fun just going back and forth when Trevor and I met back at the 2018 USA Cycling Coaching Conference uh, in Colorado. Uh, we sat and had a really great conversation. And if you are a listener and subscriber here on the Strong Savvy Cyclist and Triathlete Podcast and you haven't heard of Fast Talk episode, go ahead and head on over. We've heard from Chris. We've heard from Trevor. Make sure you head on over to fastlabs.com. Subscribe to their podcast. It's one of the originals uh, podcasts for cyclists out there. And they do a fantastic job of putting together phenomenal content. Now, the second thing here before we go is I just want to ask you, if you found value at all in today's podcast with Trevor, hit the subscribe button, share it with three other people, and bring them on into the Strong Savvy Cyclist and Triathlete Podcast family. We have lots of great content coming. I am extremely excited for the next three months of podcast interviews, as well as the training tips and coaching insight episodes that we have recorded and ready to go, just waiting for the date to hit on the calendar so they can be released into the public and to you to help you get more out of your training, to train smarter, not harder because it is all about you. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you for subscribing and sharing. And I'm looking forward to seeing you next week 
on the Strong Savvy Cyclist and Triathlete Podcast. Have a fantastic weekend. Ride safe. Keep it rubber side down. That's it for this episode of the Strong Savvy Cyclist and Triathlete Podcast with world-leading strength coach for cyclists and triathletes, Menachem Brody. Don't miss an episode. Hit that subscribe button and give us a review. For more exclusive content, visit humanvortextraining.com or get the latest expert videos from Coach Brody on the HVT YouTube channel at HV Training. Until next time, remember to train smarter, not harder, because it is all about you.